morning. Uh, again, I, I, I just talk about how wonderful this church is. This, I, I don't want to embarrass him, but I just this, this, is, this is why I love the people of this church. So several weeks ago, I almost fell into a ditch over there, and I had said to Desmond, hey, Desmond, remind me next time so I don't fall in it again. Well, you know what Desmond did? He went and he got some dirt, and he filled the holes in for me, right? So not to embarrass you, Des. Yeah, right? Little, little pieces of love and ministry. That's what I love about this church. Uh, so um, there was a, a commencement speech at Texas University back in 2014 by uh, Navy Admiral William McRaven. And he talked about to the, to the kids that were graduating from Texas University about how to change the world. Uh, and he, he did a really good job with it that he actually took those ideas and he then turned them into a book. And the book was called Never Ever Quit. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. So that was the name of his book. So he took those ideas, and then he kind of refined them a little bit. Uh, and let me just read a part of this, this book here. It says, on the first day of SEAL training, he was a Navy SEAL at one point, he said 150 other students stood at attention. The main instructor offered some initial words. Today is the first day of SEAL training. For the next six months, you will undergo the toughest course of instruction in the United States military. Apprehension was visible in the faces of the new trainees. The instructor also added, you'll be tested like no time in your life, and that most of you will not make it through, and I will see to that. In full view of the new tadpoles was a brass, bowl, brass bell hanging in the large asphalt courtyard. The instructor explained that to escape all the misery, all you have to do to quit is ring this bell three times. Ring the bell and you won't have to get up early. Ring the bell and you won't have to do the long runs, the cold swims, or the obstacle course. Ring the bell and you can avoid all this pain. And as he had another message, if you quit, you will regret it for the rest of your life. Quitting never makes anything easier. Life is hard and these are the forces that will try to break us down. But if we stand tall and strong against the odds, then life will be what we make of it and we have the power to make it great. No matter what happens, never ever ring the bell. Life is hard, right? We go through some very traumatic experiences. The loss of life, difficult circumstances that happen to us personally, relationships can be extremely painful. It can be insensitive. Life can be cruel. It can be miserable. It can overwhelm us. It can break us down emotionally, socially, financially. It could break us down spiritually to the point where, again, we just want to give up and we just want to quit. You know, they say that life can be the world's cruelest teacher in what the things that we have to go through sometimes on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, the author here of Hebrews, again, is talking about, again, that Christ is better than anything. But in this, he's got five warnings that he weaves through these messages. So not only is this a message of encouragement and hope, but this is also a reality of here are the consequences if we choose not to go through with this. So we've talked about three warnings already, and today is going to be that fourth warning that he's going to go through. So for those of us uh, that, again, are going through life, 
you know, we may want to ring this bell. We may want to quit. And this is what the author is going to address. And again, he's saying, look, the only place that we can go for hope and comfort and salvation is Christ alone. All of the things that you've thought about in the past or that you did, nothing compares to knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so in the first warning, he said, don't let the message drift, right? Don't hear the gospel, kind of pay attention to it, and then just eventually ignore it. The second one was the idea of how those Israelites rebelled against God in the wilderness. And that rebellion, that disobedience led to death. And so he says, don't rebel, don't disobey God. And then the third one we looked at was actually back in Hebrews 6, where he talked about the apostate, the, the person who failed to progress in maturity and towards holiness of Christ. And let me give you a definition here from, from Dr. Michael Kruger. This is how he defines the apostate. He says, an apostate is someone who inside God's covenant community is part of the visible church, who even perhaps professed a faith in Christ, seems to be a believer, probably partakes of the Lord's Supper, and is a member of the congregation, and then later consciously and intentionally repudiates their belief in Christ and leaves the covenant community. That is what an apostate is. So can I lose my salvation? That's always one of the big questions. People get confused by that because they think that means you can lose your salvation. The answer is no. Apostates are not people who were Christians and then stopped being Christians. Apostates were never Christians to begin with and only later did it became apparent that they weren't Christians. Okay? So, so like I said back in Hebrews 6, these a lot of times the apostate is the person who is playing church, who is playing the role of Christian, that they do all of the Christian things, but their heart is never there, right? There's a lot of things that we can say, but not actually mean. And there's a lot of things that we do that have ulterior motives that may seem as if we are serving Christ, but deep in our heart are actually serving ourselves. And so that's where the apostate is, who eventually something in life will expose that, where you will make that conscious decision to then ultimately reject Christ outright. Okay, so that's, that's where, we're, that's where we're, we're at so far. So now we're going to come to the fourth warning. And again, he's talking about the apostate, but he's going to take a little bit of a different angle here. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 19 uh, to the end of the passage, 39. But I'm just going to start with Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. And that is his body, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward good love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see that day approaching. 
So again, therefore, the previous chapters 8, 9, and 10, he's been looking at the things like the Old Covenant. He's been looking at the Old Tabernacle, the tent, the sacrifices, and all of that in Hebrews 8 through 10, the point was that, again, these are a shadow. They are, they are a representation of the ultimate reality that is to come in Christ. So again, he's using their history so that it's all set up. So when Jesus arrives, the idea would have been, we know exactly who that guy is because all of our history has been coming to this point. So again, he's recapping those ideas that again, Christ enters into the holy place, that he's the one who can tear the veil. And as Jason talked about last week, that he is the final sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. We don't need any more lambs or bulls or goats or doves. None of that is needed anymore because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins once and for all. Okay, so that's what he's laying out. And what does he tell us to do? He says, hold unswervingly to that hope. And that word unswervingly is the idea that we are not bending one side or the other, that we are not changing in what we believe or what we understand, that, that we, are, we are firm in our confidence in our eternal pursuit after Christ. Right, so, so I don't for a moment ever veer away from that hope. That's what it means to have this unswerving hope that what he has here. Now, what I love that he does, he adds this word in verse 24. He says, and, because that's not it. That's not the only part of this. He says, and, and he says, what does he want us to do? Let us consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us continue to meet together as you are in the habit of doing, encouraging one another, right? There is this communal factor that is the church that he's encouraging us to go forward in. Now, I want you to hold on to that communal idea because I'm going to come back to that at the end. I'm going to dive into that a little bit deeper after I go through everything else because this will make a lot more sense after I've talked about all the other parts of the verses here. Okay, so now we're going to come to verses 26 to 31. And now he's going to give a warning. This is a warning to the apostate, somebody who wants to walk away from the Christian faith. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony or two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot who has treated an un, as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sacrificed him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we deliberately keep on sinning, right? I'm going to make the conscious decision to go against the, the commands and the obedience of God. What we are saying is there are no more sacrifices for you. 
There's nothing else that we can offer you if you are going to keep going against the word of God. A matter of fact, the only thing that you have left is then the fearful judgment of God. And that will come one day. So if you think that God is slow, understand that he is waiting and he will come and he will judge this world and he will judge those people that have stood against him. That is a promise that he has made just as much that he has made a promise to his children for those who believe in him will find a home with him. It's kind of like, if you ever heard the person that has said, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what your Jesus says, I'm going to do it anyway, that's, that's kind of where we're at in this, right? That we are so defiant in the face of God that I'm going to ignore exactly what he's told me to do. And a lot of times we use that because we try to justify ourselves, right? The, the world has wronged me. The world has sinned against me. I have been violated. Therefore, I have a right to sin in return against that person. Well, that's not true. We don't ever have a right to sin. 1 Peter 1.3, or 1 Peter 3.9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, with blessing, because this is what you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I am not judge and jury, neither are you. Now, we uphold the justice of God. There's a big difference between upholding the justice of God and me taking it into my own hands and doing what I think is best. But this is what the author says. He says, if you're going to sin and you're going to keep on sinning, you are going to face the wrath of God. You are going to face the judgment of God for choosing to deliberately go against what he has said and what he has wanted. And he says, again, what are you doing? You are trampling the Son of God. You are committing an unholy act in this regards. And why? Because, again, there, there's, there's nothing left for you. Does that, does, that, does that mean God doesn't forgive? No, no, no. That God forgives. God forgives. But if we are going to reject Christ, there is no more forgiveness. There is no other way towards salvation if you reject the very person who has come to die to save you for your sins. You know, if we're going to say, I'm just going to keep living however I want. I don't care. I'm going, to, I'm going to live this life that I want. That's fine. But you're going to face the consequences of that. And there's no getting around that. And when it says that you have insulted the spirit of God, there is the crux of the apostate. Right? We, we reject the Holy Spirit. Now, now let, me, let me expand on this a little bit so it, it makes sense here. Okay? In Matthew 12, it says, and this is verses 31, 32, he says, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. 
if we deny the Spirit, we can't have salvation. Right? We, we, we talk about in John 14 and Galatians 4 that when we believe, that when we accept Christ, we are given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the role of that Holy Spirit is not only conviction of our sins, but the role of that Holy Spirit is also a deposit. It is the guarantee. It is what Christ, that God looks at, and he says, there is the Spirit of God in you. Therefore, you are my child and not a child of this world. But if I reject that Spirit, what have I done? I have rejected Christ. And if I reject Jesus Christ, there is nothing else to save you. He was the perfect, final, ultimate sacrifice. I, I, can't, I can't go and do so many Hail Marys. I can't pray my way out of purgatory. I can't bow before the idols. I can't throw a bunch of food at a Buddha's feet and hope that that is going to get me to where I want to go. All of those are falsehood and lies that are propagated by this world that will tell you that you can work hard and you can earn and you can give your way into salvation. And what the author is saying, there's no other way. There is no other way to find that salvation. And so, again, what are we left with? Falling into the fearful and dreadful hands of God. Again, I know that sounds odd because as Christians, we're always professing God's love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, right? Yes, but we also cannot ignore the fact that God is a holy God and will not stand in the presence of sin, nor will he allow sin to enter into his kingdom. And God is a God of justice as well. You know, in... The, the prophet Nehemiah, he was to speak to the capital city of Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. And, and Jonah had already gone and he, he preached to them and they, 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 they came and they found repentance for their sins, but then they fell back into the trap. And so now Nahum comes and he's speaking to them and he's warning them about their wickedness and about what's going to happen. And here's what he tells them in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power, and the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Again, God desires to save. He desires to bless that is why it says he is slow in anger. But eventually our time runs out. And we will bear the full wrath of the condemnation of, what does it say? The raging fires. Those that reject Christ will face the eternal raging fires of hell. And in, and in Mark 9, it says it is an unquenchable fire. This world takes that lightly. And, and we, we make movies as if it's not a big deal. And we glorify Satan and his demons. 
But hell is real and hell is horrible and God doesn't want you to go, which is why he came and died. But if we don't accept what he gave us, that is what we are left with. So that is the warning. That is the warning that he is leaving to these people. Now we're going to continue in verses 32 and 34, because now he's going to explain to us why are people on this verge? Why are they at this place where they want to turn back? So verses 32 to 34. It says, Remember those earlier days after you have received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. He says, guys, I get it. I know what you're going through. You're suffering. You're being persecuted. They're they're trying to kill you. They're trying to take your property from you. They're throwing you into jail. I understand that. And I get this idea that you're looking at your God and your Savior and thinking, where are you, God? Where did you go? I, I trusted you. I put my hope in you. And this is how I'm being repaid? Maybe this is not the God that I want. I mean, we have the God of this world. We're we're the good guys, right? We're on the winning team. We're supposed to be winning. Why does it seem that everything goes bad for me? Well, we have to go back to our John series. Remember John 15? What did he tell his disciples? He said, you will be hated and persecuted. There was never any doubt that those who would follow Christ were going to face hardship and difficulties. But let's back up a little bit more. Remember the series that we did on fear way back in the fall? Isaiah 41.10, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. That when you go through trials and struggles, I will be there. I will be over you. I will be under you. I will be all around and I will be in you. So you don't have to worry about what is happening. And again, the encouragement there is that, guys, when people were going through this, remember you stood with them. You, you encouraged them. You were side by side. And, and, and when they took your property, you said, I don't care because I have a better property in heaven. And isn't that what John tells us in 14? He says, my father has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I am going there to prepare a place for you, to prepare a place for you. And I will come back and take you with me. That is where you may also be where I am. Things are hard and you're struggling. But there is something better for you on the other side. 
So don't worry about this world. Don't put your stock in this world. Don't put your hope and your faith in this world, but put it in the eternal realm where I am and where you will be with me. So that's the struggle that they're having. That's, that's why the apostates are starting to emerge because all of those people who professed Christ now see how hard it can be sometimes to be a Christian and are like, this is not the world that I want. And they're turning their backs against him. And he's saying, if you do, heaven does not have a home for you. But he doesn't want that. So now here's the charge, verses 35 to 39. He says, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Don't throw away the confidence that you have in Christ. Don't throw it away for this temporary struggle that you're going through. What do we need to do? We need, we need to keep persevering. We need to keep having faith in the one who promised to us an eternal realm, who said, I will be with you. We need to keep going into that. What does he do? He, he quotes a passage out of the book of Habakkuk. Now, if you don't know the context, God's people, Israel, splits. And then we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel was pretty much bad just about all the time. They did not really do anything well. And God, as their punishment, had the Assyrians come in and conquer the northern group. And then the people of Judah were doing well. They did some things good, much better than the people of the north. But then they also continued to disobey. And then God brought warning to them and said, if you don't straighten yourselves out, there is going to be consequences and there is going to be punishment. And so as the Assyrians came and conquered the people of the north, I'm going to have the Babylonians come and conquer you and enslave you for 70 years as a result of your disobedience. And Habakkuk looks at this. And he says here in, in chapter 1 of verse 3, he says, Why, God, do you make me look at injustice? Why, God, do you tolerate this wrong? And in verse 13, he says, God, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than, your, than themselves? God, help me to understand Help me to understand because I'm with you and it seems like the bad guys are having all of the good times. Why have you forsaken me, God? Why are you putting me in this circumstance? But what does Hebrews 10 quote, which he's quoting out of the book of Habakkuk? He says, the righteous will live by faith. What kind of answer is that, God? So for everything I'm going through, all you're going to respond with is I have to live by faith? 
No, no, that, that doesn't sit well with me, God. That's not an answer to my problems. That's not an answer to my struggles. God, you, you, you owe it to me. I need to know why this is happening. Let's just remember again who is God and who is not. God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't have to give us an answer to anything in this world. But when we get answers, we should praise him for the fact that he graciously allowed us into a small glimpse of the window of his wisdom. But he says, those who live by faith, faith on the promises of God, will be saved. That still may not sit well with some of us. Why? Why doesn't that sit well? Because we are people who want control, right? We are people who tell God all the time, God has no idea what he's doing. We are people all the time who look at God and say, he completely messed this up. You know, if I was God and I was in charge, I would make everything better in this world. That's what we do all the time to God, right? Well, maybe we need to be stopped so being stopped so concerned about what God is doing, and maybe we need to be concerned about the sins in our lives. Have we ever thought about that? Because, see, it's those sins that will destroy us and send us to the condemnation of hell. I think maybe we should be more worried about that than what God is doing, because guess what? God has already taken care of it, hasn't he? But we don't like that. But, see, here's the thing. Habakkuk wrestles with this. And when he comes to the end of the book, here's here's how he ends the book in in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. When he's wondering, God, where are you? We're struggling, the sin, the injustice, the wrongs. God, 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 why? Why, God, why? Please, God, why? And here's how he ends it. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to go on to the heights. Habakkuk never got an answer. But he didn't need to know the answer. The only thing he needed to know was who God was. Because if we know who God is, we know how God works. And we know what God has promised and what God will do one day. And if we know that about God, then we know where we're going. That's what we need to hold on to. So what is the author telling us? He says, you need to persevere, guys. You need to persevere through the struggles and the trials of life. You need to keep going no matter how hard things get. We need to keep on pushing and pushing because what we have is an expectant hope that God will return and God will bring me into his kingdom someday. You know, when the Apostle Paul was on the end of his life and he knew it was coming near, he wrote this to his protege, Timothy. He says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, for the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also who have longed for his appearing. 
Have you guys ever seen those videos of those marathon runners or those, those Ironman runners? They, they get to the end, right? 26 miles, 120 miles of brutal exhaustion. And, and there is the finish line. It's, it's, it's like 50 yards away. It's, a, it's, it's 10 yards away from us. And, and they get there and they're running. And then all of a sudden you just see it. They've given everything they've had. And their bodies are just wobbling and they're struggling and they collapse on the ground. And then what do they do? They get every piece of strength they have to try to get back up. And if they can't get up, what do they do? They start crawling on their hands and knees to the finish line. Because what it becomes about is about the finish. It's not about who wins or who loses. It's about, can I finish this race? And so often we get caught up in the idea that I'm running this race because I have to win. Guys, you don't have to win. Christ has given us the victory already. All we need to do is finish. And sometimes in this world, life is going to knock you down and what you need to do is get back up. And it's going to knock you down and you need to get up and not quit on Jesus. And there are going to be times where it is so hard that all you can do is crawl and pray on your hands and knees. And God is saying, yes, yes, keep going. The end is there. That is the faith that we need to have because it is Satan who wants you to quit and to roll over and die. So let me work into this final portion here. Again, as I said, life is hard. These people are struggling. You all have your struggles. Every one of you has gone through something in your life and you will continue to go through something in your life. And you are probably thinking, why God, why God, why? Remember what I said in the beginning here. This is a collective church. You are not to walk this alone. If we go back to verses 24 and 25, what does it say to do? We are to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. You know, there's a reason why this right now is so important. Again, you, you don't come to church to put your chips in the basket with God. We collectively fellowship together because I need you. I need your love and your encouragement when things are hard. We've had some small groups going on. And we're going to make some more announcements uh, as we move through the summer here. And as they're going to kick off in the fall again. Guys, I don't want to add something to your schedule for the sake of adding to your schedule. But, but I strongly consider you to think about being part of one of these small groups. Because that is a place where you will find encouragement and love. That when you struggle, you don't have to think, should I call Pastor Adam? 
because you're already going to have a group of people around you who love you and care for you and are willing to walk whatever road they have to with you. That, that is what the collective church does. But I love this word spur. Oh, it's an intense word. It's an intense word. It says to provoke, to irritate, to have heated conflict, to exasperate, to stimulate, to excite. Guys, guys when, when, when somebody's going through something and they're struggling, we don't just go, oh, I'm, that's, I'm sorry to hear that. Boy, that, that really stinks. That's awful. What a shame. I'll pray for you. No, no, no. What the author is saying here is we need to rally around those people and say, don't throw in the towel. Don't you dare do it. I will not let you do that. I will be on my hands and knees and I will be praying for you. And if you need something, you call me. And if it's three o'clock in the morning, I will be there because I will not let you walk away from this savior of ours. That is what it means to spur one another on. It is not polite, polite niceties, but sometimes it is the brutal, honest truth that says if you walk away from this Savior, you have nothing left but fearful judgment. And he doesn't want you there, and I don't want you there. That is how we live together as the church. Let me, let me go back to the very beginning, and I'm going to finish this off here. Admiral William McRaven. Again, he's talking about this time as the Navy SEALs. He's talking about Hell Week. He says, this is what he says about Hell Week. He says, it consists of five and a half days of cold, wet, brutal, difficult operational training on fewer than four hours of sleep. Hell week will test your physical endurance, your mental toughness, pain and cold, tolerance, teamwork, attitude, and your ability to perform work under high physical and mental stress and sleep deprivation. Above all, it tests determination and desire. And throughout Hell Week, instructors with bullhorns are constantly enticing trainees to quit mimicking their inner voice that tells you to give in to your physical pain and quit to ring the bell. And he said, one of those days, they found an infraction against our group, and they made us run to this area. And when we got there, we jumped in and were covered up to our heads, and we had to stay in this water all night. And the instructor said, if five of you if five of you would give up and quit, everybody in the group will be done with the cold. And you can go back to your beds. But I just need five of you to quit. And so he said, in the middle of the cold or the chattering of teeth, there were hours to go before the sun would rise. And then he said, one person started singing. And then another started singing. And then another started singing. And he said, at that night, at that moment, the cold didn't feel so cold anymore. The dark didn't feel so dark. And the water didn't seem to be that bad. And nobody quit. So what is our message to us? That if we're going to stand here as believers, guys, you will be hated, you will be persecuted, things will be awful. But don't you ever, ever ring the bell because Christ will never 
ring the bell on you. Let's pray. Lord, this is a challenging message. It is easy to stand here when we are not going through difficulty. It is easy to stand here and say, I will never quit on you, but it's a whole lot different. We were in the midst of trials and struggles and temptations, and and as the world beats us down and we lose the ones that we love and we lose our jobs and we lose our money and our homes and our reputations, Lord, those are the struggles. But Father, this is both a warning and an encouragement that we are to live as the church, that we are to rally arm in arms with one another and to not give in because God, what awaits us on the other side is better than anything we could ever imagine. And Lord, right now, as, as I pray, I do not know all of the hurts and pains, but Lord, you do. And so in this moment, for those that are sitting and for those that will watch this message later, may your spirit of peace rest upon them that allows them to get back up and to finish the race because you have already won the race. Amen.